Hi. Hi. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm well. I'm rested. I'm rested. Yes, that's good. I wish I could say the same. I'm not rested yet, but I'm well. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I've made a practice that with the transitions of the years to go into it the way that I want it to be for the rest of the year. Which, yes, like calm and peaceful. And um, I don't know sometimes if my rested is calm. It's sometimes, you know, accepting what is because there's all yes. kinds of things that go on, you know. Yes, and yes. Uh, we just came out of, you know, the holidays, which brings up so much for everybody. Yes, for sure. And yes. so I, um, I just make it a practice to really support the intention that I want for the following year and understand mm-hmm. how important transitions are and how we can lose ourselves in them. One second. I'm so sorry. My mom. No, it's okay. Take your time. Welcome to the Lift Oneself podcast, Gwen. I am so thankful you're here with me. I'm so grateful to be here with you as well, Nat. Let's take a breath together. Breathe in through your nose and gently release. How's your heart doing? My heart is in all sorts of places right now, but it's doing well. What can you thank COVID for? Peace. Just being away, um, spending time with myself, spending more time with my son, just being kind of forced to just be still and understand that, you know, we can't control everything and we don't have to control everything. And that sometimes we just have to sit down, be still and just enjoy the ride, I guess, you know? And so I think that that's one thing that I can thank COVID for because it forced us to pause in a world in which everyone is moving, moving, moving all the time. Not only did it force us to pause, but then it forced us to look at each other and understand that we are all connected, that we're really all connected, no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter where we are, and no matter what our social classes, our experiences in life are, our jobs, or any of that. And then it made us redefine essential. And we appreciate and, and, and appreciate some people, some um, jobs that we never really considered essential, right? Um, so yeah, COVID for me gave me such a great opportunity to reconnect with myself and connect with others. And people who mattered and people to whom I gave, but who gave me so much more. And then it allowed me as well in my work to discover, to discover inequalities, inequities, um, things that were happening literally behind our backyard in Vanier that we knew nothing about nothing about 
Because, for example, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the homeless Black families that we work with, even BIPOC families, even some white families as well that I've met there in these shelters and centers and buildings. And you would see all of these beautiful humans during the summer smiling, happy, but you didn't know the hell that they were living. And so then COVID allowed us to witness and experience that hell with them. And then to give them back a sense of hope and rebuild a sense of community and redefine community and redefine as well, what is it that we wanted to do at the foundations that I work with, whether it was equal chance or a cow, which stands for the African Canadian Association of Ottawa. And we realized there's so many, so many vulnerable people in the community who they're not even asking for much. They're just asking to be heard. Just, just for people to hear them out and to know that they're not alone. So yeah, COVID gave me a lot. I can't even, uh, I can't complain, to be honest. You know, I miss my family, of course, traveling interactions as we knew them before. But yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you share with the listeners what fuels you in the work um, that you do with Equal Chance and cow that you were saying, working with communities, uh, being with the homeless, what fuels that? What keeps you continuing in that work? I've been in places and in times in my life where I felt like I had no one. I felt like I had no one. And I just I feel like we have to finish what we start with people. I don't think it's fair to enter in anyone's life, bring them hope, and then take that away from them and disappear. Because that creates traumas. You're adding on to people's traumas. And that's why having experienced homelessness myself when my dad was murdered, having people in my family that experienced homelessness as well simultaneously and that never really talked about it until years later and then we realized we all kind of we all faced the same thing but everybody was ashamed and scared to talk about it I know how hard it can be and how lonely how alone how ashamed you can feel asking for help doesn't always come easy to everybody but then when people have the courage to ask for help, we have to have like a gentle heart to not only respond, but to try our very best to continue to support them. I started Equal Chance because of two things. The, the first thing was just a lack of resources for our mothers in the community. It started with that, Nat. And it started with the traumatic experience that I had at a workplace where I was told that I was the first woman in 40 years to become pregnant and that they didn't have yet a maternity leave policy. 
but that at seven or eight months pregnant, the best thing they could do for me was to offer me a telework agreement so that I didn't lose um, um, income. I didn't know my rights. I didn't know much. I'm, and, and, and yeah, I just, I didn't know my rights and I was scared. I'm thinking I'm having a baby. I'm like eight months pregnant. I'm doing my best. Who's going to hire me now? So I signed this telework agreement. And the telework agreement gave me three weeks with my, my child. And then I had to start working. But then my child was born and he was born, I believe, on a Friday or Thursday. I don't remember. And then on the Monday, we got sent home. And I, I knew from the moment they gave him to me, I knew there was something wrong because he wasn't drinking. And they then told me that it's normal. Some of the kids, they don't get the, 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 the sucking movement at first and they'll develop it. But like three days in, my son, even with the bottle, was not drinking. And I kept telling these nurses, there's a problem with my son. And they were looking at me like I was not okay. So when they sent us on the Monday home and I saw blood in my son's pee at night, I panicked. And so we rushed him to um, a clinic. They told us to come back the next day. They discovered that he lost 12% of his birth weight and that we had to rush him immediately to Chio. When we brought him to Chio right away, they they put an NG tube to start feeding him so he could gain the weight back. Um, and what was interesting is, although I'm not a doctor, my maternal instinct was always from the moment I was in bed, I was telling them, I think he needs a tube. I think he needs a tube. And they weren't listening to me. And so on the Monday, on the Tuesday, we get to Chio, they put the tube in and then the roller coaster begins for our son and myself and my family. And um, we have no answers for three weeks. So mind you, all these three weeks I'm at the hospital. So now my maternity leave while well, my telework agreement, agreement starts. So I had to start working. And there's days where I had to leave my child at the hospital to travel, to do all sorts of work. And I was so afraid of my workplace. I was so scared. I was afraid to speak up. I was afraid to, I was just afraid. And um, that fear, man, I wish I could go back. I, I really wish I could go back. And I wish I had the courage that I had, that I have today. Because I would have never allowed myself or my son to go through this. For the first year of my son's birth, I barely saw my son. I was in planes almost every month. And I was made to feel like you have to be grateful for this job. And you have to be grateful that you're traveling the world. And you have to be grateful. But there's nothing more important than our children. Children don't take us away from important work. They're our most important work. And I wish fear didn't cloud me to the point that I I abandoned my son in a way for work and in March 
of one year, there was the Commission on the Status of Women in at the UN. I worked so hard, Nat. I was the only Black person left there. I worked so hard. I got the highest level meeting at the UN with the bus of the U, of UN women and my my supervisor. And then I'm told there's not enough money to take you on the trip, but we need you on the trip. So we'll figure something out. And while I watched all of my non-Black colleagues take a one-hour flight to New York, I was left with no choice but to take an 11-hour bus ride to New York. At that moment, I remember my former colleague, who was a young Black girl named Tendi, um, she called me the day I was traveling. She said, hey, Gwen, where are you? Because we all lived in Sandy Hill. And I said, oh, you won't believe what's happening to me, Tendi. And I explained the situation. And she said, I'll take the bus with you. And I was like, okay, well, say less. Let's, let's go. And I remember that bus ride was like full of emotions, like anger and then laughter and then why, but why are you, why are we even in this bus? Why are we, why are we traveling? Like, is our dignity worth the money? And I told Tendi, no, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm not going there for them. I'm going there for us. Because once this chapter is done, we're starting our organization and we're going to make sure that our people, our mothers, our women, our men, our boys, our gender diverse people never have to go through this. We're going to make sure they have access to the resources so that they never have to face what Geo faced while we were at work, where this Black man asked for a raise because he was hired for a specific task and they started making him do all these other tasks that were not part of his uh, contract and he requested a raise and then they told him, well, think about it and get back to you in a week. And then a week or two later, they called him in an office and lied to him that the government cut funding and that there was no longer money to, to retain him at work. So they had to let him go and then made him sign some form of paper that said, we're giving you this money and you're no longer allowed to talk about you're not allowed to talk about this or us or anything. And it was just like, man, like, what, but, like how, how is that, that we're in, anyways, it, it's just racism and, and discrimination is something that I will never understand. It's something that is extremely traumatic. And I remember when our colleague told us that he would go and ask for a raise, we all told him, you know how they perceive us don't do it. You know that you're going to lose your job. Don't do it. And he said to us, girls, I can't look at you as black women and tell you to never ask for pay that you deserve. Don't look at me as a black man and tell me that I can't go ask for a raise that I deserve. And I'm saying, but we're trying to protect you, my brother. And he's saying, that's okay. At the end of the day, I can't go back home to my son, look at him and say, I was never able to ask what I'm worth. So if they want to kick me out, let it be. But out of respect and for my own dignity, my own sake, I'm going to go and ask what I deserve. And so he did that. And when they let him go, I remember he came up and he looked at us with a big smile and said, they let me go. 
he packed up his stuff and he left. And so we were having these conversations in the bus. And I told Tandy, you know what? We're going to go there. We're going to meet people. I'm going to do my job because I'm an honest person and I'm still there to do a job. But I'm also going to make sure that I gain enough contact. I gain enough knowledge that could be shared with our people, that could be shared with our people. And, uh, and we did that. And it was amazing. We met so many people. And, and, and from that, we, I managed to get a, a, a high-level meeting, which was historical, um, and, 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 and then an invitation at the UNESCO, at the UN in, 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 um, in Paris, where uh, we had some women speak there and be invited for the first time. It was incredible. It was such a great experience. But what made me leave was when I was asked, to work on a task. And I told them that I was alone at, at home with my child. I was told, you know, gently, it was always nice. Like, oh, we're trying to help you. So no, no, bring your child. There's people at work that can take care of them, of him. So I said, okay. I brought him with his two because I'm feeding him every two hours. And one of my colleagues attacks my child and I gets in my 11 month old baby's face. And I remember I was on WhatsApp with my sister. She hung up and started texting, record, record. I was so panicked. I started recording it in uh, voice recording on WhatsApp. This woman attacked my child, called him names that I will not repeat here and said, keep your, this word, sick child out of our effing workplace. Why don't you guys go back and live at Chio? And she went on to call me a bad mother. What kind of mother takes her child to work? Knowing very well that I was asked to bring my child to work. And so I followed the protocol of the workplace. I went to the first layer of complaints. You have to go to a specific person. And I did that. And the person, not knowing that I had a tape, was trying to say that that wasn't true that she knows that colleague and that colleague would never do that because they're the same. At this point, I realized my son and I are on our own. And I told this person, I'm going to HR. I see where you stand. And the person told me, don't go to HR. Don't worry. Um, I'll fix this. And I'm crying. And my, my son is crying. And you can even hear my son in the tape cry because this woman is scaring him. So my spirit of discernment told me to go to HR. So I go to HR and the lady there and the men tell me you did well to come because the person that you went to complain to just filed an harassment file against you stating that you're lying about her, her employee and that you're harassing them. So when I made them listen to the tape, they were so disgusted. They told me, you can go home. We're so sorry you had to face this. Go home um, and send us an email. CC that person and attach the tape. I never attached the tape in case that I would need it for legal matters. But I did say that the folks at HR listened to the tape. So what happened is that these people took a sick leave. And so they claimed that they were, that they were traumatized by me. 
right? Mm-hmm. So seeing that HR, no one was going to do anything other than tell me that I too could go on sick leave. I went on sick leave and then I was, I decided it was enough. I'm not coming back to this workplace. There's no respect. There's no consideration. And and keeping in mind that I, as a supervisor, was paid $10,000 to five and $10,000 less than the people that worked under me with less credentials, with less diplomas than me. I was paid $10,000 and $5,000 less than two people working under me. And so that for me, like the accumulation of all of this made me say, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. And equal chance really comes from all that we were requesting in certain settings and that workplace and other places for equal diplomas, equal intelligence, you know, equal dedication at work. We just wanted an equal chance to do our work, to be paid properly, to be respected at work. That's all we were asking for, just an equal chance. And and that's what so many members of our community and, and other communities as well, but so many members of our community are asking for just an equal chance. And so for all these reasons, knowing that I went through all these experiences in my life, homelessness, racism at work, uh, harassment in the workplace, and I had nowhere to go. When I, I see a brother or sister or a gender diverse person in the community going through something like this, I want to be able to support fully and make them understand that I may not have the money, but you have my, you have my ear. I'm here to listen. You have my arms. I'm here to hug you. I'm here to support you. And sometimes just that is enough. I I have mothers in shelters. They call me just because they want to talk. I miss my husband. Our papers are not really working right now. Things are stuck. I just need someone to talk to. Or I just need someone to pray with. Just that makes a big difference in people's lives. It, we, it doesn't take much to, to make a difference in someone's life. How do you support your mental health? Oh, I learned to go to to therapy, um, to speak with people, uh, to express myself, to write a lot, to listen to music, to pause and to say no. So sometimes I can't, sometimes I'm exhausted. And 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 so to also say no before you get exhausted, to Learn how to know your body enough to know when it's speaking to you and asking you to slow down. And that's something that COVID helped me with as well. You were asking earlier, you know, one, what are you grateful for, for COVID? And that's one of the things to just be still and pause for a minute. Yeah. How do you support the grief in you? Because as you mentioned, your father was murdered. And at the beginning of this um, podcast, I had introduced a part that was still, you know, impacted in your body. The trauma of the death of your father. And the last time you physically saw your father was January 1st. Mm -hmm. So right now, you know, viscerally, you know, it's been almost, I guess it's 13 years going on 14 
um, that he's transitioned, yet that trauma still stays in the body. Grief still stays yeah. in the body. Sometimes I go to bed, I close my eyes and my dad's alive and I wake up and my dad is dead. And I have to take a minute to get myself together. I think that grief is not something you get over. You never get over it. You get through it. You know, you grow through it. You grow with it. Um, what made it very difficult this year is my dad had given me a ring. Um, and I've had this ring since 2002. I forgot it at a person's, uh, in a person's car, I think. And the person knew how much this ring meant to me and never gave it back, you know, and lied that it was mailed in some courier. And I don't care about the value, the financial value of it. It was more the sentimental value. I mean, like I often touch cause I used to wear it all the time. So it's like difficult for me sometimes, but I do understand that my dad's love isn't in objects, but it's in the spirit. So it's forever. But sometimes like even something like this and having people play with your traumas sometimes is just, it's disgusting. But for me, grief is something that you, you go through and you grow through and it's not something you can get over. So for me, if I need to cry, I'll cry. I try to honor my father in everything that I do. When, when he left Canada, the last time I saw him was at the Trudeau airport when he waved and said bye. And before that, we had a talk at the food court at Trudeau airport with my sisters, my other siblings, my dad, my mom. And he, he said, you know, I'm leaving you in this country. We've been here for years. There was never any incident, no problems with the police, no problems with the law, nothing. I'm expecting all of you to remain the same and to evolve into citizens that bring worth, um, that contribute to the society in which you're now deciding to stay. I don't know if you're going to come back after your studies or if you guys want to stay here. But one thing I want you to understand is that you all have to be people who add value to whomever you meet in life and wherever you go. Let it be your spouse. Let it be your friends. Uh, the random person you meet in the plane or on the street, you need to be able to leave them with something, um, some value, intellectual value, spiritual value, financial value, whatever it is, you have to add value to people's lives. And he used to always tell us beauty, physical beauty is ephemeral. Internal beauty is forever. The way you treat people says more about yourself than what you say. So try to leave, build your own legacy. I did my part. My dad would always tell us, gee, I come from poverty. I, I had nothing. I'm not like your mom who had parents. My dad used to tell us his dad died while he was still in his mom's belly. So he never met his father. And then he had to fight to survive in the village. And then he did a lot of stuff that he, he's not proud of to survive. And so even when we were here, he was a diplomat. We were living in this nice home, but he would always remind us, this is not your house. That's the house of the state. This is, this is, I'm getting this house because I worked. You need to do the same thing. And if it wasn't for the fact that you can't work here as diplomats, I would have you all get, get a job. 
but you need to do something with your life. And the least you can do is study, go to school and get great grades. Like you're in a privileged situation where you don't have to work. Other kids your age, 16, 17, 18, they all have jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I always like, I always, always, always kept this message. And when I became homeless, it was one of the most empowering, sad, yet beautiful period of my life because I I was in a space where I had, I was at the bottom, bottom. So the only way I could go was up. And, and so we always have choices. I could have sat there and be like, oh my God, this is not the life I imagined this. But my dad, just, just his story was empowering me. I was like, I feel like I'm my dad now at the beginning. I'm back to basics and that's okay. I was okay sleeping on the floor, like switching from the floor to the bed because I was sharing with one of my friends. I was okay with it because when, when we had guests at home, my mom used to always say, you sleep on the floor, you give your, your, your bed to the guests. You always treat guests like they're royalty when they come into your house. I never got attached to homes and cars and because all of this, you know, even when my dad died and we had to throw all these things here, you realize like these are just, that's not part of your legacy. Your legacy is how many lives were you able to impact? How many people were able to have hope restored in your life after they spoke with you? How many people were able to chase their dreams and understand that their goals are achievable after they saw you do it? How much did you receive and how much of that were you able to give back? Because for me, the more we give, the more we receive. And I'm not saying financially, I'm saying, you know, just even spiritually, um, doors that open, things that you never even asked for that just begin to appear in your life, healthier relationships. And you know, Nat, when we started distributing food, Um, We were on the Black Ottawa Connect group at first before we discovered all of the homeless families. And I remember how vicious some people in the community can be and how unhealed some people are, so much so that they want to hurt other people and drag them with them. And the work we do at Equal Chance is volunteer work. So we're not paid to, to do that at all. When the pandemic started in March 2020, Equal Chance had just been registered in July 2019. So we weren't even a year old that we were already, you know, out in the community trying to give these food hampers, culturally relevant food hampers to people. And there were these girls that I went to university with who were bullies. And, but their bullying never stopped me and other people from just persevering. And they abused their position of power at one point to try to harm us, myself, other black people that were there. It wasn't white people. It was black people doing this to other black people. And so they managed to get one of their friends in the community um, to write under a post that I wrote to help the community were giving food hampers to say, everybody in the community has a problem with equal chance. And I knew right away that that wasn't true. Uh, And then I asked, oh really, how? And 
can you please explain to me how and why we we just started and we're giving food? Well, I personally ordered food. Um, and keep in mind that we received over 300 requests for food. We were only three volunteers. I requested food and it took 48 hours to arrive in front of my door. I'm like, okay, do you realize that we're only three people and that we have to go from Orleans to Canada to even Gatineau and that we don't always have the time and the energy, but we're doing our best. Oh, well, that's not the problem. Your volunteer came to my place. And then when I walked out to get my food, he drove off. That was a lie. It was a lie. And not, I was hurt because I realized that some people will go to incredible lengths, incredible extents to just hurt you. And so when we discovered the homeless Black families through the Catholic Center for Immigrants that I was volunteering and helping uh, with, with the food, for, food program for, I then said, you know what? I'm going to actually give to the people who appreciate and who actually need it. Because I was at a place where I had days I didn't eat. I was just drinking water. If someone gave me food 48 hours later, I would be really happy. And I would be damned to just cuss this person out because it took 48 hours. And that's when I knew this, these, these people just want to hurt. And I started praying, Lord, help me find the people in the community who are actually in need, God. Just help me just open that door so that we can actually make a difference in people's lives that will appreciate it. And I tell you not, all these families we've been helping and that you've seen and that Diane has seen uh, through Cardio 365 and, and the support that you folks have given us, none of them are ungrateful. Everybody appreciates it. And I, I remember I, me every day or every two days at least I was there, especially during the summer. And there was a week where I, I discovered a problem with my my right breast and so I stayed home I was very depressed and one day I hear knocks on my door I open there were six kids with bikes that we offered them thanks to Howard Stanley in the community and his bike club and they said I remember the relief oh my god you're here and I was like yeah I'm sorry I wasn't feeling well we were worried about you, Auntie Gwen, all kids who biked just to make sure that I was okay. They didn't come to ask for food. They didn't come to ask for anything. They just wanted hugs and to know that I'm okay. And then I said, I explained, I've been going through a little bit of a health scare. I'm really sorry. And one of them said, okay, I will pray for you. But these are kids that are 12 and under. And, and so, at that moment, I felt like we're, we're helping the right people. We're doing the right thing. We're making them not just feel, but know that we're family. I'm, I'm one knock away. I'm one call away. You can come to my place anytime. 
don't ever be afraid to be alone. You're not alone. If there's a problem, we're here. We're going to support you. And, and that makes a difference. How do you support your self-care? Uh, lots of rest now. Lots of no's. You know, last year, at the beginning of the year, January 1st, I did something that was I felt so good. I would have never done that before. I removed myself from every WhatsApp chat that didn't serve me. Every, every group chat that I just, my spirit wasn't okay with it. I removed myself from them. Um, so for me, it's like accepting to add a new permission for yourself and understanding that it's, it's okay. It's okay to say no. And understanding that, you, you know, there's a say that the saying that goes like this, I think it says, you don't have to set yourself on fire to keep everyone around you warm. And that's true. And that we don't have to dim our lights because other people can't accept and can't embrace our brightness. That's not your responsibility. It's okay to, it's okay to acknowledge your victories. It's okay to celebrate your, your victories. The small ones like the big ones. And I was like listening to, to Jay-Z. I think it was Jay-Z that was saying that, you know, Sometimes when you celebrate your victories around small-minded people, it sounds like bragging to them when it's supposed to be empowering. So sometimes for me, well, a lot of times for me over the years, I had to just review my circle and, and, and accept to lose people in order for me not to lose myself. And so self-care first and foremost in the past years came in accepting to lose people, accepting to be alone at times, standing my ground, you know, um, prioritizing me and my peace, prioritizing sleep and exercising and eating healthier meals. And so, yeah, self-care for me is just, it's a, it's all of that, that I just said, just, Operate at a new level of permission for yourself. Really take care, sleep, eat right, eat your vegetables, uh, drink your water, rest, you know, do what makes you happy. What words would you want to give to somebody when they're feeling that darkness? Like you mentioned the people that were bullying and, and it seems like no matter what you're trying to do, other people want to bring you down. What would you share as wisdom for them to continue on? When I was 12, I was going through a lot in um, school. I was bullied a lot. Um, and we were not a lot of black kids. It was at Lycée Claudel, this private French school. I still have really mixed feelings about this school. Um, in fact, like I was told by so many teachers there that I was dumb, that I would never amount to anything, that my parents were wasting money sending me to this school. Um, I had a principal take myself and other BIPOC students in her office to say 
um, it's usually BIPOC students that create more problems. And generally, they're the ones that can't afford fees for this school. If it was for me, I would, um, I would up the school fees so that none of you could afford it. And my school would be exempt of gangsters. I remember this and I was 14 when this lady said that to me. And I remember Jackie, one of my friends, she was very fierce and she was like, oh, hell no, you're not going to talk to us like that because the money that my mom pays to your school has no color and it's the money that pays your salary. So you have no business talking to us like that. We would complain about other kids making monkey noises uh, when we were outside. And you know, it's now that I'm an adult that I realized whoa, what these kids were putting us through was not okay. It was not okay. Like us playing in the backyard and having people do monkey noises or try to pull our hair and push us to our limits and then us reacting after weeks and weeks and weeks of complaining and going to the principals and going to teachers to say, we're going through this and they're ignoring us. One day, my friend Rebecca took matters in her hands and decided to fight back and hit back. But then we were told that we were the savages. We were told that because we had more strength than them, that we were the violent ones. And we were asked to leave school for a week. We had a suspension for a week and my mom. And that's why I, I think parents have such a big role to play in the um, self-esteem and, and mental health of children. My mother and Rebecca's sister, who is the mother of Shelly, um, and, and, and Talia's mother all showed up at school and did not give a break to these, these people, not to the principals, not to the teachers. And they went off. And my mom was saying, kick my child out. I dare you to kick my child out. And we ended up staying in school. But then as I was growing, I told my parents, because I was in the school from age nine to 16 or 17. And I told my parents like, but why are we forcing ourselves in their system if they don't want us there? I know my worth. I know I'm smart. You know what? I don't know how to, like, I'm not good in maths, but I can count money. That's all I'll need later on. That's not my field. I'm not good in science, but I'm good in, in literature. I'm good in Spanish. I'm good in languages. I'm good in social stuff. I know where I'm going. I don't want to stay in this school. So when I was 17, I, I switched schools. I went to De La Salle and that was the best thing I could do for me. But I remember when I was 12, I went and my grandma gave me these. I went to Senegal on vacation and I was crying because we were being constantly bullied at school and I was explaining it to her. So she gave me these three monkeys that I still have at home. And one had their hand on the eyes, one on the ears and one on the mouth. And she was saying, you don't hear nothing. You don't see nothing. You don't say nothing. These people are not on your level. So they're trying to drag you down. But you have to understand that you have something special in you. And that's why they are trying to take that away from you. I didn't really quite understand what she was saying. I was just like, oh, it's just grandma just trying to uplift me. But now as an adult, I see it. I understand what she meant. You know, like it, for me. 
I learned in life to make a difference between the criticism that are there to help you grow and criticism that are there to crush your soul. And so once I realized that some people that hurt people hurt people, I decided to forgive and to pray for people and to move forward. And then the field in which I work, I actually work with people who appreciate the help, who need it, who need the support. So they don't have time to talk about people or to hurt people. They're trying to get their immigration papers straight. They're trying to eat. They're trying to find a job. They're trying to find housing. They're trying to get out of their situation. They don't have time for small talk. They're building. They're trying, you know, they're they're trying to make, have a better life for themselves and their children. And so, like, if, if you change your circles, if you change your mindset, if you control your emotions, then you can control your life. If you're able to control your environment and go from a negative environment to a super positive, uplifting environment, then your life is going to change for the better. So for me, it's always focusing on the positive and know that, you know, if it doesn't apply, let it fly. It doesn't apply. That's a lie. It's okay. I'll let it fly. And then understand as well that sometimes you may make mistakes and offend people and, and it's not, you didn't do it on purpose, but try your best to rectify the situation respectfully. Understand that we all have a, a part of responsibility in everything in life. If you've hurt someone and you know you hurt someone and someone is you know, courageous enough to, to open up to you and say, this is how I felt, honor that. Don't be on the defensive and try to defend yourself and and justify why you did this and that. If, if you know you hurt someone, just take a moment to, you know, like you said, breathe in, breathe out, take that in, listen to understand, don't listen to respond. And always, always, even if you're going to leave a relationship, always try to leave it in peace. And understand that it is not your responsibility that other people leave the relationship in peace. It's your responsibility that you leave in peace so that at the end of the day, you have nothing to, to worry about. You did your part. Just do your part. I'm going to just bring you into a reflective question. I'm going to ask you to bring this awareness right now to your 18-year-old self. And you have only three words you can tell your 18-year-old self. It could be in a form of a sentence or just three individual words that would be significant. What would those three words be? Take your time to reflect. It would really be faith first and foremost. Have faith in yourself. Have faith in God first and foremost. Know that all things will work out for the good of those who love him. Faith is the first, first thing. Respect yourself and love. Faith, respect, and love. Respect yourself enough and love yourself enough to walk away from anything that is not for you. And know that once you do that, greater doors, better opportunities, better people are coming. That's what I would say to my 18-year-old self. Just have faith in yourself. You're going to be all right. 
you have anything to offer the listeners? Just love um, and, you know, prayer that, you know, this year you, you, you put yourself first, that this year um, you're easy on yourself, even with your goals. Just be easy on yourself. Have mercy for yourself. The same mercy, the same ease you, you know, you give to others, the same love and encouragement you give to others. Try to reinvest it in yourself as well. It's not selfish. It's necessary. And yeah, have, have more faith. Everything will work out. Where can the listeners find you? They can find me online on Instagram at Gwen Madiba. So it's G-W-E-N-M-A-D-I-B-A. And they can also send me an email. And my personal email is gwenmadiba at gmail.com. And then the work that I do is through Equal Chance. So it's equalchance.ca. And my email there is president at equalchance.ca. We didn't even get into your fashion and we didn't get into the other things that you do also. Um, hopefully you'll be able to come back again as a guest and share a little bit more what's happening in 2022. Absolutely. I really do that. I really want to thank you for being um, a warrior in our community that you've actually taken the shit and you've processed it so that the garden can have its nutrients. Hmm. You have really taken the suffering and turned it into strength. And you are walking your talk. So thank you, Gwen. I think that's, you know, there was parts where you said that you wish you could go back or change or have a voice. And I think those experiences really expanded your empathy for others, really Mm -hmm. opened up your heart with compassion because you had to really experience it to really understand what others experience. Because until we go through something, we can kind of minimize it and make it feel like, oh, they're just whatever narrative there is until you have to go through some of those trenches, you have Mm -hmm. no idea about the human spirit. So I want to thank you. Thank you so much, Nat. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me and then um, for letting me share a part of my story with your listeners. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I hope that someone will be empowered from our conversation today. Yeah. Remember to be kind and gentle with yourself. I will. (laughs) Thanks for the reminder, Nat. Thank you for making it to the end. I appreciate you and your time. If you found any value in this conversation, I ask you to help us grow by subscribing to the Lift Oneself podcast and more sharing it out to others. The more that we have conversation and dialogue, that are honest and open, that is when we can remove the stigmas around mental health. Until next time, remember, be kind and gentle with yourself. You matter.